My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. So I'm joined on the latest edition of Bridges to the Future by Natalie Nixon, who is a writer, a consultant. You'll have to forgive me, Natalie, in also saying that you're also involved designing and making lingerie, but that's only a small part of your past. But it did leap out at me from the book in your wonderfully varied past. But is writer and consultant a good description of you? Yeah, I describe myself as a creativity strategist, an author, and a global keynote speaker. Yes, that's spot on. Very good. Well, we're delighted to have you on the program. And you know, because your book is about one big idea, I have no hesitation in asking you the question that we ask everybody in this podcast, which is, Natalie Nixon, what's your big idea for the post-COVID world? My big idea is that we need to embrace creativity as the essential competency for the future of work. It is the engine for innovation. It's not some woo-woo frilly add-on, but as technology becomes increasingly ubiquitous and basic tasks are going to be replaced with robotics and AI and computers, it's our built-in human design capacity for creativity that will distinguish us and ensure that we can have a flourishing life and really meaningful work Great. Well, of course, that's right up the RSA's street. And I'm going to be very careful in how I pose questions to you, Natalie, because, of course, your book, which I really enjoyed, contains a chapter called Ask a Better Frigging Question. So I'm hoping that that's not going to be a riposte you're going to give to me at any point over the next few minutes. Now, the obvious question is, what do you mean by creativity? Because it's quite an elusive concept, isn't it? Yeah, well, I spent a lot of time and we're giving that thought. I define creativity as our capacity and ability to toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems and to create novel value. Interesting. And toggle, you say, yeah? Yeah, because, you know, there's this principle in creativity called flow, which comes from the psychologist Michale Shinksanale. I don't know how to say I, uh, You know, I, rem- I, I remember his name by, I think, of Cheeks Make Me High. Ah, I like that. Cheeks make me high. Thank you. Mihaly, cheeks make me high. I love that. I will never forget it now. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, he's responsible for really nailing that um, when we're in the state of flow, that's when we are the most creative. And there's two corollaries I have developed as it relates to creativity and flow. One is that rigor cannot be sustained without wonder. And so what was happening in a lot of my consulting work, I consult a lot of organizations and how to build cultures of innovation, that the big I word, everyone wants to be innovative. But I kept having this creeping sensation that we were talking over and around each other when we were throwing out the word innovation, which is why I landed on this principle that we actually need to start with creativity. So this first corollary that rigor cannot be sustained without wonder is essential because so many organizations believe they have nailed 
rigor, right? They run from meeting to meeting, they follow procedure, they have a rule book, and this is all in the pursuit of innovation. But the challenge, of course, is that they will burn out without designing space and time for the wonder. Rigor is just not sustainable. The corollary to that is that wonder is found in the midst of rigor. So in the midst of doing whatever task you consider to be rigorous for me, it might be filing my taxes or creating some humongous Excel sheet. It's in those moments of rigor where we can have those aha moments. So that flow is very much a part of the way I define creativity as toggling between wonder and rigor. They are copacetic, they coexist, and they are codependent. Great. Well, let's for the next few minutes put creativity in the dock and kind of cross-examine it. So the first question, I guess, is who is creative? I don't know whether I am a creative person. I mean, I always assume that artists are really creative. Me, maybe so. And I guess in the creative hierarchy, I look down on, I don't know, realtors, as you would say, or estate agents, as we would say, and think, hmm, I'm more creative than them. Is it useful to think of a kind of creativity hierarchy? I don't think so. I think that's the old model of looking at and understanding who is creative. Creativity should not be something that we ghettoize among artists. That's not fair to artists, and it's not beneficial to our society at large. And creativity is not a luxury. It's not something that people do who can just while away the day. That's actually quite the opposite of creativity. In my book, The Creativity Leap, I interviewed over 50 people who come from law and science and farming and plumbing and beauty and consulting and really to try to understand if my definition stuck, if it made sense and to understand how wonder and rigor manifests in their work. And as it turns out, we all have this capacity to be creative. So the glib answer is that everyone is creative, but of course that's not true. And really you have to put in the sweat equity You have to put in the work. You have to design space and time for both wonder and rigor. And as it turns out, there are some scientists who really are good at it and who are incredibly creative because of the time and space and processes that they set aside to, you know, to sit with discomfort, to really needle on an idea, to not be afraid of ambiguity and uncertainty. That's the same in law. That's the same In farming, I interviewed a couple who own a five-acre fruit farm, and I walked away with this conclusion that farmers are the original hackers. (laughs) You know, they really have to contend with VUCA environments every single day. So we all have this capacity to be creative, to exercise wonder and rigor, but we have to do the time. We have to spend the work and the effort to do it. Creativity is not something to romanticize. At one point in the book, you quote Ken Robinson, and he's spoken at the RSA a number of occasions, but you quote that particular point you make, which is that children start off creative and our education system kind of hammers it out of them. And I think you rather fear that's the case. How can we teach? We know how to teach history and we know how to teach mathematics. How do you teach creativity? Mm, So it's, in my opinion, it's not really a matter of teaching creativity. It's more the matter of how we're teaching history, how we're teaching the sciences, how we're teaching mathematics and literature, right? I agree with Sir Ken Robinson that, you know, I was a professor for 16 years. I have all in about a little over 20 years plus experience as an educator. I was for a chapter of my life, a middle school and high school English teacher, which is probably 
the best preparation for any work, but probably the most fun I really had when I taught and when I learned, when it was hands-on, when it was experiential, especially there was the final chapter of my career as an academic, as, as a professor, I created and launched something called the Strategic Design MBA program. And so it was this executive MBA program that integrated design thinking and to how people were learning strategy and marketing and branding and financial operations. And we totally flipped around what an MBA class looks like, feels like, smells like, sounds like. The classes were loud and noisy. It was less sage on stage. There were no auditorium stadium style seating. We really borrowed heavily from the design studio model and you know, as someone who studied dance for many years, I realized there's a reason why in the arts you can progress and go from proficiency to advance to you know just stellar without having grades because you learn by doing. You learn through regular short feedback loop units of feedback. You learn by observing your peers and by testing and experimenting on yourself what you're observing others do. You learn as much from your peers as you do from the lead instructor. So for me, it's shifting to understand that creativity is a means to an end. And it's, again, I keep going back to this, but it's how can we integrate more wonder and more rigor? Sometimes we make it a bit lopsided into the ways that we are teaching and encouraging people to learn. So like all good business books or books oriented to people in business, you have a few lists in the book and you also follow the great advice, which is to try to get them to start with the same letter. So tell me about the three I's, Natalie, because that plays an important part in your argument. Yeah, so I believed it would be helpful to give people a framework, a process to go by in terms of how we might exercise and amplify creativity. And now as I list it out and I say it, it sounds really simple and maybe a little obvious, but this was a culmination of about four or five years worth of research and work. And it certainly didn't come up in a linear fashion in my head. It really emerged as most complex systems do. So the three I's are inquiry, improvisation, and intuition. And inquiry, of course, is curiosity. I can't emphasize enough that asking better questions, asking different questions, not shutting down curiosity in our school learning environments and in our organizational environments is essential. I was inspired and learned a ton from Warren Berger, who wrote a more beautiful question and really points out that asking questions is a way of thinking. The second I, and sorry, and again, I just want to say this is not in a linear order. I'm just, you know, listing them in this way. Improvisation is about being adaptive and emergent in self-organizing. To be improvisational is not to say you have to be really good at playing a jazz riff or to be able to hop up on a stage and do a stand-up comedian solo, right? To be improvisational means that you can actively listen. You aren't already stuck on your way of concluding on something. You are building on others' ideas. You embrace experimentation. Those are all the characteristics of being improvisational. And finally, intuition is really key. Intuition, I call pattern recognition. We are hardwired to be intuitive. And some of the most highly regarded rational thinkers like Steve Jobs and Albert Einstein And I'll go back even earlier in the history of my own country, the United States, Harriet Tubman, who liberated hundreds of enslaved Black Americans into freedom, they all emphasize the value and importance 
of intuition. In fact, Einstein called the rationale the humble servant to intuition and talked about how we have forsaken the master intuition and instead of embraced the humble servant. But, you know, when I interviewed, for example, Biplap Sarkar, who was the CEO of Vectorworks, he is a PhD in engineering, head of a tech firm. When I got to the part of my conversation with him where I was going to ask him about intuition, I was a little nervous. I thought, oh gosh, this engineer is going to balk at my question. Instead, he completely went on with all these stories about how he uses his intuition. He applies it to help him with decision-making. So those are the three I's, inquiry, improvisation, and intuition. There are quite a few jazz references in your book. You refer to Charlie Mingus at one point, I remember. And this kind of relationship between the notion of creativity as being around kind of improvisation, but also around, you know, discipline and structure as well. It put me in mind of a story. I'm sure you've heard the story of John Coltrane and Miles Davis playing together one day. And Coltrane was going into his long riffs that he played. And at the end of it, Miles Davis getting more and more impatient. And Coltrane turns to Davis at the end and says, Miles, I'm really sorry. And you know, when I'm in those kind of riffs, I just don't know how to get out of them. Miles says, well, you could try taking the horn out of your mouth. <laughs> You know, that the fact that this creative process is one that involves discipline as well as improvisation and, and creativity is a really important one. I think important one for young people as well, isn't it? That it is through learning your craft that you create the foundation for creativity. Absolutely. And that's a big lesson from improvisation and specifically, as you referenced, from jazz improv. Because jazz musicians, of course, they know music theory. They practice incessantly. Even the simplest loosest jazz composition has a minimal structure, has a beginning, a middle, and end, and the key that you're going to play in. That is the order uh, in terms of it being a chaotic system. The chaos piece comes in the magic that happens in the interstices. So yeah, it's, it's this misnomer that the improvisation by extension, creativity is something that's kind of woo-woo and you just kind of randomly pull out of your armpit. We need the structure and we need the boundaries so we know what to rebound off of. In an earlier podcast in this series, I spoke to someone who's a bit of a hero of mine, Matthew Crawford, and you know, he's just written a book about why it's great driving cars and why we should resist driverless cars. And I think something that he's argued throughout his career is that we underestimate at our peril the importance of materiality. He writes beautifully about using materials, whether it's metal or wood, and the way it resists you and the way that you relate to it and the way we relate to material things outside ourselves. And I recall that one of the things he said when I spoke to him was that he wonders whether creativity is ever true if it's just on a screen. I think he wants to argue that there needs to be a material quality. to And I mentioned earlier that, you know, you design clothes as part of your career. So you've had that element of creativity, which is actually about using materials. Is it possible to be creative without materiality? That's a really good question. I, I think that's still yet to be seen. I know that Galit Ariel, who I interviewed for the book, who I'm actually going to be talking to a little later today, Galit is a augmented reality expert. And what she is encouraged by in the technology that is intangible is that it will actually expand our capacity to experience the senses. It, she believes that it will expand our capacity for sensorial design as we explore dimensionality in different ways. So learning from her, I feel encouraged about the possibilities and more specifically that the opportunity in what we're calling this fourth industrial revolution contrary to earlier industrial revolutions where humans kind of subsume ourselves into the tech, we become these cogs in the wheel. 
the opportunity now is for the technology to amplify what it means to be uniquely human. But but I have to say, I do get what Matthew Crawford is talking about as someone who appreciates the tactileness, even in my studies as a dancer. I studied modern dance and it's the bare feet on the floor. We don't even have the, the slipper to be in between our skin and, and the surface of the ground. I derive a lot of meaning from that. But I think that the shift that we will slowly and surely make is that we will derive meaning out of new dimensions and yet to be seen if that's going to be detrimental or not. I mean, I find it interesting, Natalie, that when we use the RSA design processes and we've got a great design team, when they're workshopping, they will very often have elements which are material. You know, it's not just post-it notes, but they'll bring out bits of wire and tape and they'll say, look, make your prototype. And people say, well, my prototype's an idea. They say, well, still make it. If you have to make it, If you have to turn it from your head into something which you can show, it will have a creative capacity. So I don't know, I kind of hope that however clever augmented reality is, we still recognise that there is something particular about the tactile and the material in terms of where it fires our imagination and also the way it helps us to communicate sometimes when we're working together with a kind of resistant material, as it were. Yeah, well, I agree with you. It's about the tactile and even being able to visibly demonstrate a concept. If we can see it, we can believe it, right? It helps us with the storytelling, with the story framing, and it helps us to find the holes and maybe in, in what we're thinking through if we have to literally explain it. You know, I, I recently gave a three-hour design thinking workshop for a client over Zoom and the preparations for it, they said, well, do you want to use Mural you know, the platform where people can use these virtual post-its for, you know, getting people to converge on ideas. And I said, you know what? No, let's just stick to everyone in their own home space. We'll have paper and Sharpies and a pen. And it worked out beautifully when we did doodling. We know the neuroscience of creativity tells us that the neurosynapses in our brains fire away differently. For example, when we are reading a book that we are holding versus when we are reading from a screen, when we are writing a letter with a pen and paper versus when we're we're clickety-clacking away on a keyboard. So there is evidence that our brains respond quite differently. Can we just draw back for the last few minutes of our conversation, Natalie? I mean, The Creativity is a great book, but it also put me in mind of other kind of questions that are roiling around at the moment. And the first actually concerns tech. I mean, you talk in the book, you interview a lot of people in the book who are involved in tech. And We have associated big tech companies, Apple and Google and Facebook, with creativity, with very creative people, entrepreneurial people. But also we now associate a lot of those companies with forms of creativity that worry us a great deal. And that's leading to a kind of pessimism and negativity about technology. I guess my point here is what's the relationship between creativity and purpose? Because, you know, you can be creative in bad ways, can't you? To me, creativity is all about meaning making. It's how we derive meaning and purpose. It's how we make it. And I'll, I'll just reference the work of David Kessler, who's you know considered to be a world-renowned expert on the topic of grief. And he was part of a really great interview that was published in Harvard Business Review back in March when in the United States we were just really reeling with the realities of COVID-19. There are two takeaways from his article that I got. One, The five stages of grief that we typically think about, denial, anger, bargaining, sadness, and then acceptance, 
first point was that they are actually non-linear, which I was relieved about because I certainly was bouncing back and forth between anger and then acceptance and then bargaining and then denial and then acceptance again. The second takeaway is that there actually should be a sixth stage of grief. And the sixth stage of grief, David Kessler said, should be meaning. And I love that for a couple of reasons. Number one, it allows us to, instead of ending on this plateau, which is acceptance, we can end on this uptick of meaning. What is the meaning of all of these revelations for some? You know, I'm an African-American, so I'm quite aware of the systemic racism in the United States. But since the visible police brutality that happens, the curtain's been pulled back, and we have to go from roiling and the sadness and grief of these horrible realities and not just end on acceptance, but end on meaning. What do, where do we go from here? What are the actions that we take? Similarly for COVID-19. So one of the things I've been advising clients about and advising them how to apply this, one of the things I, I speak quite a lot about and write about is that days of uncertainty and chaos are designed for creativity because creativity is about meaning making. It's about deriving purpose. And I'll share a quick example that I shared in the book that I think points this out in a really particular way. I reference how in the 19, early 1980s in the United States of America, we were seeing one of the largest divestments in arts education in our public schools. And of course, in the States, public schools mean something differently than they do in the UK. But these are schools that, you know, for more underprivileged kids in cities will tend to go to versus private schools. And what that meant was also limitations in music education. So what happened? You saw that young African-American teenage boys converted a turntable into a percussion instrument, which then led to the birth of hip hop, which is now the largest music form in the world. So that to me is a wonderful example of taking nothingness and turmoil and kind of destituteness in creating meaning out of it through creativity, through wonder and rigor, through kind of repurposing and repositioning and recombining things that formerly were never thought to be put together. Well, Nasi, you've introduced these major events, the COVID epidemic, which as an American, you're still kind of really in the midst of. And of course, the Black Lives Matter movement and the way in which that's really coalesced a kind of movement against structural racism in your society, but also in our society and, and more broadly. Now, I'm a fan of America and, you know, both my sons went to university in America. But yet it's hard when you view America from the outside today not to see it as a country that seems hopelessly and almost crazily divided and also one that seems like it's in decline and decay. So, you know, listening to you and the positivity of your message, I can't believe that you would accept such a pessimistic view. But how does America get back on track? The only way we will find our way out of the dismal picture you just painted is through creativity, because creativity requires curiosity, which is actually the precursor to empathy. Right before you can actually empathize with someone, you have to be curious about them. You have to want to wonder and inquire why do they do it X way instead of Y way? You know, why have we only spoken to such and such group of people instead of these other group of people, right? So creativity requires us to frame and act on different questions. It thrives and flourishes when there's collaboration and that kind of messiness and stickiness that comes from cognitive diversity. 
I've often said that the my country, the United States of America, is and this is coming out of my noggin. This is anecdotal. I believe, I suspect that we are at one one thousandth of the level of innovation that we could be at because of racism and sexism, because of these societal barriers that for really random reasons prevent a much more inclusive participation of problem solving. And so in my view, this is a simple answer and it's not so simple. It's going to be creativity that helps us to identify the vaccine, that helps us to figure out the way we're going to start onboarding again, that will help us for companies that are part of legacy systems that have kind of just been chugging along to understand the markets around you have shifted. How are you going to adjust? How are you going to reinvent? And that is all going to come from a creativity mindset, which can totally be practiced. It can totally be exercised, which will translate into a behavioral shift, which will finally translate into a cultural shift. I see that's fascinating. But as we're approaching the end, I can't resist sharing with you the kind of ideas in my RSA annual lecture this year, because it does chime, I think, with what you said. So I've taken this idea that crisis can lead to change and that we may be moving into some kind of different era. And how might we think of that era? And I suggest that one way to think of it is of a reflexive age. And what I mean by a reflexive age is obviously a reflexive thing is something which, as it were, reflects on itself, thinks back on itself. And it seems to me that we need ways of thinking about ourselves that are reflexive. We need to understand that, you know, freedom, as you've argued in your book and creativity, don't just come from having what you want or doing what you want. They come from self-awareness. They come from self-discipline. And we know we're not the kind of homo economicus that was propounded by the kind of free market ideologues, that we're much more complicated and altruistic and empathic and irrational in many ways. That equally, we need leaders who reflect on the very practice of leadership, that you, if you are a leader, you need to be aware of the nature of leadership, the perils of leadership, the way that leaders always tend to think that the best solution is their solution or a top-down. So you need to reflect on the nature of leadership and also groups. And we live in a very kind of identity-based culture at the moment, whether it's the kind of populism of the right or the importance of identity in radical politics as well. And groups are really important to be part of groups. It's what drives a lot of our values and our kind of other regarding behaviour. But also groups, again, need to be reflective in the sense that if groups look inwards, they tend to become defensive about change. They tend to become more extreme. They tend to kind of turn in on themselves. So my idea really is that what we need is an age where we think more deeply about the nature of the most fundamental forces that drive our lives, our aspirations, our values, our leadership. And do you think that that notion of reflexivity, of thinking about the thing, as it were, is part of the creativity you're talking about? I do. I have many frameworks that I experiment with and that I then write about and then apply and, and for my clients. And one of them is this formula I've made up, which is that hindsight plus foresight equals insight. And it's actually in my book as well. And what I mean by that is that hindsight is part of the reflexivity that you're talking about. We need historical context. We need to understand to what extent have we been here before? What can we learn from the past? Foresight is really less about fortune telling and predicting a singular future. Foresight actually is about being hyper-rooted in the present 
and observant about our present state so that we can identify multiple possible futures. So I would cast that reflexivity as needing a combination of hindsight and foresight in order to get to really poignant insight, in order to help us find our new true north and get us to where we need to be going. Well, Natalie, it's been great having you on. We're excited to have you on because of your book, The Creativity Elite. But also, I have to say, we're also excited because we hear you've become a fellow of the RSA in the US and we're delighted to have you on board. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.